Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Somehow it became May this week. I don't know what's going on. Time is moving so much faster than I am. But I do hope that wherever you're listening to this in the world, that you have some sunshine. Maybe you're like me and you haven't seen the sun in six months because of the gray skies of Seattle. Or maybe you live somewhere you always have sunshine. But that to me, there's just always a little extra pep in my step when the sun's out. So I hope that's the case for you. Today, I got to talk with Nate Carl. He is a co-founder at Spectrust and their CEO. I really enjoyed this conversation and I know you will too. Whether you're a merchant or a solution provider, there's a lot to learn in this episode. One of the real challenges for fraud fighters in e-commerce and marketplaces and even some fintechs hasn't been selecting a fraud technology tool to help them, whether it's an extra layer to fill in a gap or upgrading their current solution. A lot of times, especially from the outside, it can seem like a no-brainer. Like, Why wouldn't you want to put this in? Especially if there's a high dollar amount attached to it. And every day that that solution doesn't get added and implemented and then trained on and et cetera, it can cost the company money. However, those of us that have been on that side of the fence know that the most challenging piece is implementing and deploying new technology for fraud. It's in the engineering piece. So it can be very challenging to select the right provider for that tool. I mean, a lot of them sound very similar and promise the same types of things. And so you really have to know what to ask and what to listen for to understand which solution is right for your company, which one's going to provide the best results, not only to prevent chargebacks and abuse, but also to help your customers, your good customers have a seamless experience, that can be a challenge in itself. And that's something, you know, I hope to talk about in the future at some point, just some tips around that. However, once you select the provider, then you have to go through all these steps internally to try to get prioritization and have engineering implement it. And hopefully they implement it correctly. Hopefully the data is formatted correctly in the right fields. Hopefully they're sending the right fields through the API. There's just a lot there. And as a consultant, I've worked with more than a handful of companies that have had challenges in this piece as well. Beyond selecting the vendor, it's how do we get this into our system? It's not easy and it can take time. Even if the provider is saying it can be, it can be in production within three weeks or It only takes five hours of dev time or whatever it is. It's just a RESTful API, no big deal. We know that's not the case internally. And that's what Nate and I talked about a lot today. It's really, regardless of the size of the opportunity, it can still be a real big challenge. Every once in a while, there will be someone else within the company that will champion something new, especially if a specific problem like account takeover or something like that is impacting customers and their our posts on social media and some pressure there that can help it. But 
that's not normal state. So I got to talk to someone on this episode who knows both sides of this challenge firsthand. He did something to make this help make this challenge a little easier for online companies. Nate Carl is the CEO and co-founder of Spectrust. He's a well-respected technical product manager in the Silicon Valley whose experiences working at Akamai Threatmetrics and eBay led him to think way outside the box of how fraud technology has been deployed and used and implemented to create a new kind of product in the anti-fraud space. I'll let Nate share more in this conversation about how Spectrust is changing that game in fraud technology by providing a no-code platform that can allow its client companies the ability to add or upgrade their tech risk stack without any code or lead time. But it's not just changing the game for merchants and fintechs that they work with. They're also enabling other fraud tech providers the ability to get up and running for their merchant clients faster, as well as ensuring the implementation will optimize the tool with the correct formatting and data fields. But in addition to learning a bit about what Spectrust is and how unique it is, and just it really is enabling some large merchants to get to be very creative and think outside of the traditional technology boxes that we've had, and also to not have to rely and beg. And I mean, I once made cookies for my engineering team so they would implement a code change on the internal system that we created. This was 13 years ago when there wasn't a system for the business model we had and we had to have it homegrown. And I had to bring in cookies on a fairly regular basis just to get the upgrades. And that's not common, but that was how I got it done. But in addition, we talk about some of the surprises Nate experienced when changing his perspective on payment fraud and abuse from the vendor side to the merchant side. I always enjoy talking with people that have seen both sides of the fence, whether it's the issuing side and the merchant side. For me, it was the payment processing side and the merchant side. For Nate and for others, either merchant to vendor side or vendor to merchant. You know, honestly, as I say that, it's a lot more common to see people that have been on the merchant side go to the vendor side as sales support in some way than it is to see someone go from the vendor side to the merchant side. So that was intriguing to me. And then back to the vendor side to try to help solve some of the issues he had as a merchant. He has suggestions and lessons learned in working with engineering teams and conveying the need and impact for new technology, plus a few creative hacks or words to use or cases to make to appeal to the sensibilities of the powers that be to put in new technology sooner, as well as unexpected lessons and surprises that Nate's experience as a co-founder of a new fraud technology startup has provided him. Not only that, but actually there was a couple things that Nate said that I just really liked so much I was writing them down as he was talking. And one of them I ended up texting to a friend of mine who runs fraud for a top Fortune 100 company, probably much higher on the list than that. I know that they're having challenges with their internal engineering team. And one of the things that Nate said, really, I thought, oh, they're going to love this. So I sent them that quote and they said, is there any way you can write a white paper or an article with that in it so I can send it to my boss? If that just one sentence was helpful or at least validating for my friend who's also a fraud fighter, I have a feeling that there will be several nuggets of information that will be interesting to you all. Again, whether you're a merchant or a provider. So 
With that, you get to hear me talk just a little bit more about Spec Trust in the ad, and then Nate and I are going to dive in, and I really think you'll like this. Welcome back to the Fridology Podcast. I am really happy to have Nate Carl here with me. He is co-founder of Spec Trust. Welcome, Nate. Thanks, Carissa. Love being here. It's so fun, and I uh, am aware that some of your employees are fans of the podcast so we can say hi to them now (laughs) no it's uh, i think like a majority of our new to fraud employees is like hey this podcast is required listening especially anyone who's going to talk to a merchant this is i don't want to say 101 it's it's probably 102 like we handle 101 in-house but in terms of what's happening right now in front of mine yeah it's required listening (laughs) i appreciate that a lot i really do and I have heard from some of them. I've met a couple in person and I don't always know what to do with the fandom, but I really appreciate it. We're all just nerdy fraud fighters at heart. Our head of sales, uh, Matt Bitzer, like whenever a new, one of your new episodes drops, like I see that Slack notification from him before I see my Google podcast. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet of Matt. I, I do know it's required listening for some large merchants as well. And that's very humbling. And I, Sometimes I try not to take that as pressure, but sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, I need to figure out what everybody needs to know right now. But I'm very fortunate to have a good network that usually I I, can stay pretty real time. And the audience is getting something out of it. And I think you've just seen a pretty big explosion yourself and just in terms of listenership. So what you're doing is working. Well, I appreciate it. And I really (laughs) appreciate Spectrust being a sponsor. It's all win-win over here. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score. Or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models. And their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. That's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. 
Easy choices. I appreciate that. Let's start talking about you. Probably not your favorite topic like most of us in product, (laughs) but I I think there's a lot for people to learn. So um, just starting out, like most of us in fraud, this wasn't your main career goal. Can you share a little bit about what you planned to do and how you first got started in fraud? Yeah, no, like I got into fraud you know, a weird way, like most folks. I think my my earliest starts were like cybersecurity. Like I I got involved with the internet really in the mid 90s at like a really young age. I loved the hacker aesthetic and I was like that that kid in high school who like he was trying to explain to my dad why Charter Cable was sending us like angry letters because they figured out I was like sending malware to my friends for fun. And so anyway, so I cleaned up my act about a decade later. I was working in cybersecurity uh, for Akamai as they were uh, rolling out their first cloud security product, which is really cool at the time. Like you were, hey, let's start fighting cyber threats out on the internet as opposed to in a data center. And that was fun. But like for me, like security can get into a little bit of sameness. If you have really good principles, you apply them consistently and you'll generally will start to do well. And don't get me wrong, it's still hard to stay on top of. It's a big surface. But like in my experience, like the defensive side of cybersecurity got a little bit less creatively fulfilling. And it wasn't until towards the end of my time with Akamai that I met one of the co-founders at Threat Metrics, and that was a, a, a pretty big opening of my understanding of fraud and the type of problems there. That's super fascinating to me. I just wrote down less creatively fulfilling because I love the way you said that, but it's true. Fraud is full of ambiguity and new challenges, and people either love that or hate that, yeah, <laughs> or I it's mean, a love-hate. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like fraud problems are like, forgive like the mixed metaphor, but they're like delicious, right? Like a a security problem, like you might sit in a war room for six hours, like waiting for an attack to show up. But like in fraud, like you can watch somebody wake up, plug in, iterate through different attacks, change tax structure, change your tactics, change their tools, go away, get frustrated, drink a bit, come back in the night. You know, it's just like you see the other person at the other end of the wire and it just feels, just feels so much more alive. Yeah, definitely. When we started, when I started about 15, 16 years ago, it felt like hand to hand combat for sure. And now we have a lot more technology where that's not as much the case. But yeah, it's definitely just a lot more balls to juggle. But it's almost like I'm mixing metaphors now, too. But it's um, almost like a tennis match, right? Like where or hand to hand combat or however you want to say it. But like we do something good, then they do something more innovative and back and forth. And it's your point i don't think many of us have the same day twice yeah no totally you know and i think the people that you get to work with in fraud are also and and i don't mean to to knock any other part of tech forgive me but i feel like i think you're in good company in my listenership so it's all good (laughs) i just i I feel like the the people that i've worked with in fraud they come from all different sorts of background there's lots of people who are like formerly in customer service so like I found that there's opportunities given to people in fraud who are like, there's more women, there's more people of color. There's just like more diversity in the working environment, more diverse perspectives. And it's a working environment that I prefer to a lot of the other ones that are available in tech and just say, where it's like, oh yeah, this is where I want to be. Like, this is where I want to spend time. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. I was going to ask you what meeting want to continue on the journey of fraud fighting, but I think you pretty much answered which is great. So in addition, after you worked at Threat Metrics, you also then went on to work at eBay. So yeah. you've had the benefit of working on both the vendor and the merchant side of fraud, which I have too, if you consider consulting and working with vendors that way. But I'm really curious what surprised you about being a merchant after you were on the vendor side at Threat Metrics for a few years. That was really wild. So it's like, so back up a little bit, like when I was 
you know, at Akamai and I met Alistair at Threatmetrics, like we were running into this issue where Threatmetrics had difficulty deploying for their customers. So we stepped in and I helped them and the technology seemed pretty simple. We kind of had to clutch something together to make it work, but it worked well enough. It's like, this seems you know, easy. Why is this so hard? And then we go into threat metrics and it was like, hey, it's like a piece of JavaScript and an API call. It's like, this seems easy, but like a lot of customers struggled to put it in. It's like, why is it so hard? And it wasn't until I went to eBay, where was just, oh, I get it. I get it. Like when you're a vendor, you sit so close to the technology, you live or die by how good the solution is. And on the merchant side, technology isn't always the first thing that you reach for when you have a problem. Like your tech teams have a ton of competing priorities. They have thick process to get through. It's it's the lead times can be out there. So if you need to respond quickly, sometimes you're looking at your operations team. They see is there a new process that you can add or like a new step or review queue because that will get you to a survivable solution faster and you just don't go to the tech first. So like that, I think is like one of the most profound things of just going in, just like realizing where that is. There's a lot of other things too, but I think that was like the thing that like immediately jumped out and there's knock-ons on top of that. I, I think uh, this is uh, it's true of many organizations. So I don't, I don't think eBay is special in this way, but like getting data from eBay to eBay is just really hard. Um, like modern technology is built in a very segmented way. So if you need this holistic view over the whole customer journey, you're going to have to knock on 15 doors from a you know a technical perspective to get that done. So sometimes it's frustrating for the people working on the fraud end because they ask your technology team for something that feels really simple. They don't know how many, how many doors they're knocking on to, to get that answer. And layers upon layers of information. Mm-hmm. It can be really challenging for sure. Totally. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is where it's like accidentally malicious is that the fraud team will have some sort of problem. They need they need a specific piece of data, a specific answer, and the technology team will go off and bring it back. But what they really should have brought back was like the means to answer their own questions in the future and an understanding of what scope of questions might they have. But instead, they just feed them teaspoon by teaspoon, which just makes everybody tired. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you're absolutely right. It's not an eBay specific problem. So you're not calling them out. I know this is a, an enterprise wide merchant issue. And I think that's one of the many misunderstandings between solution providers and merchants. To your point, solution providers are so close to the technology and the solution. They're like, this is a no brainer. Why can't you just put it in? And it's a quick RESTful API in JSON format. Like this is simple. It'll take you through what they don't realize is how many different teams need to get involved, how many other competing priorities are happening, how, yeah, this might be a problem for them now, but is it as big as other problems, not just in fraud, but across the entire organization, especially when fraud is fighting for engineering resources uh, against teams and departments within the company that bring in revenue, like top line revenue, that's almost always going to get priority. What did you experience in that way as far as engineering prioritization when you were on the merchant side that was probably a little enlightening after being on the vendor side being like, why can't they just do this so simply? (laughs) Yeah. Engineering prioritization is rough, right? So everyone has their own process. At, At the time when I joined eBay, like it was like annual planning with we put 250 like projects as part of an initiative and there would just be this cut line that would only take the top 75 or so so they'd stack rank those based on like the compliance that would allow them to do business and then what was going to grow revenue and then what was going to increase like perceived or actual product quality and risk was 
dang near the bottom. So you had to have like tactics in order to get risk things above the cut line. You had to really find a way to change the narrative about what you needed to be almost less about fraud, yeah. which is more about the customer experience. Like, hey, if yes. we want to give it a great customer experience, we need to do this. And like BT Dubs, like it's going to reduce fraud losses and operational. A side effect is really good, but we know you care. Yeah. Oh, I, as a consultant, I have to do that a lot. Kind of sugarcoat. Yeah, yeah. You kind of have to sugarcoat the pill or whatever. Yeah, package it in the right way. Say it in the right way. And a lot of fraud-focused things are about customer service or customer experience when you do it in the right way. And that is a better narrative than just we're going to cancel all the bad sales. It's we're going to get through the good sales much faster. But yeah, I think that's something that is hard to understand until you've been there. So I find it you know, really fascinating when we were talking before, just how we went from solution provider to merchant to solution provider again, and how I would imagine that the experience of being on the merchant side has really informed this new chapter. For sure. Yeah. And I think there's, there's still like more challenges yet to it because it's say you, you come into you know, being a merchant and you have like very real problems in front of you. And eventually you like run into the same problems enough. And it's like, you zoom out, it's like, okay, like what systemically right. could we change? <laughs> Can we have... stop just like <laughs> reacting and turning on the fire hose every once in a while? Can we like just not have the fire happen? Yes. Yep. <laughs> Which, you know, so going back to a solutions providers, okay, cool. Let's come back with a systemic change. But, you know, how can you know, we reach people who are looking for problems for the fire in front of them? So, yes, we can help you with the fire, but let's bring that up a bit. And like, yeah. how can we think about future fires and just be ready for those? I, I think it's really smart. What's one of the biggest projects you worked on or lessons you learned while you were at eBay? I think one of, let's see, biggest projects. So really, that was getting the first 5% of eBay traffic with sales traffic, like the payments off of PayPal and onto Audion. And in order to do that, we had to have our own compliance stack. We had to have our own AML stack. We had to have our own, like basically buyer, a new buyer fraud stack. So that was a ton of work to coordinate across all these things. Meanwhile, we're worried about breakage for people who are just going to just drop out of that, uh, that, that buying flow and not really sure where breakage is going, where that attribution is going to land, right? Like the risk team doesn't want it to be their fault. The onboarding team doesn't want it to be their fault. So just like every, you know, everyone wants to be there, but not necessarily like the reason why anything might slide. The, I think the biggest, the biggest piece of that and just like getting that to land correctly was around helping people find purpose in the work, which mm -hmm. is probably hard to understand. Like when you're in it, I, I can like, when I was in it, it was just like very hard to understand. Like, no, like it's really just about like elevating where everyone's thinking about it, where it's not, Hey, I need you to implement this vendor and it, Hey, I need you to develop this variable. It's really about like, how do we not just teach a person to fish, but provide them with everything like the rod, the lures, the like the, the soup to nuts piece of it, because that is really inspirational work that's going to have a profound impact on the company. And like mm -hmm. being able to bring that up and not just be another thing on the checklist that just gets thicker more than it gets thin. Yeah, I would imagine that was a huge task as far as bringing payments from 
their previous parent company and on the PayPal rails into another PSP. And there's so many factors that can sound simple, mm. but there are so many factors that have to be considered, not just risk and fraud, the chargeback system and the approvals and just the whole journey, the customer journey from a payments and risk perspective. And there are, it is a choose your own adventure when you're you know, building that out and building that risk stack as well as the payments optimization flow and orchestration. And it can be subjective, but to your point, it can also be robotic where everyone's just feeling the slog of the project and not seeing the bigger impact and just how big of a value it is to the company as well as to the customers. I think that's a really good reminder that a lot of us get wrapped up in the day-to-day and our to-do list and our meetings and not thinking about what's the bigger impact to my company and to my company's customers. Yeah, no. And at eBay, we were lucky. We had dedicated engineering teams for risk and fraud. That's mm-hmm. not true in a lot of places. So when you have a dedicated team, there's there is some double-edged to the sword. Like there is a lot of personal pride that's tied up in whatever like pre-existing infrastructure that you have. There's you know a lot of sense of just like, being afraid to crack open the lid of this thing and like really start to, to mess with what's been Nobody wants to working. turn over the rocks and see what's underneath. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's more less of looking at this instead of, hey, let's like kick open a dark door and walk inside and more of now this is like a call to action of could we could we do this in a way that is like a beacon for how we'd want to do this somewhere else, which is sometimes it's talking about somebody to somebody about like their next job. So it's like, hey, listen, like yeah. eBay is an amazing company, but do you want to build something here that you'll be proud to talk about when you go on to do whatever your next thing is? That's a good management motivator in a way, right? Where I I know and it was a little around a decade ago that I had my own team. So this is old memories or old experiences, but I know that it was important to me to A, remind my team that their paychecks were paid for by our good customers. Their paychecks were paid for by the customers that we approved, you know, and just remember like those pieces. And then also, yeah, how important it is to stop the bad guys, but, and the impact that would have on the business, especially as we became a struggling startup. And I needed every every sale we could. And I think that can create team pride and just an extended purpose. And I think we're all, especially, I feel like for me, it was around my mid to late 30s that I started thinking about if it's not legacy, it's purpose and impact. And I think that that's something that we should all keep in mind. This is more than just pushing a button or doing this. There is a greater good. I actually, on last week's episode, I interviewed Ian Mitchell, who is the founder of The Noble. And he's a 20-year fraud fighting veteran turned nonprofit owner focused on using fraud fighting tactics to stop human trafficking and human crimes and scams. Like, talk about being Mm -hmm. altruistic, but it's, I heard that from him so much. And I'm sure listeners did too, just that additional purpose. He's had the giant paychecks and that wasn't fulfilling to him. And this is the kind of fulfilling work he wants to do. And sometimes it takes personal sacrifice and it's worth it. Yeah. And I don't, uh, is there like uh, opportunity for great success and fraud? Yes, absolutely. 
But as someone who like talks to the investing community a lot, like this isn't the, the top of mind for a lot of people, right? Like in some places they don't understand fraud besides credit card chargebacks or mm-hmm. they don't understand fraud beyond, I'm sure you'll cringe at this, the cost of doing business. A lot as a consultant, yes. And I'm like, don't you can lower those costs of business. Yeah. So, so choosing fraud and choosing like waking up every day and just choosing to be here and to make this place better. Like you're doing it because it means something, right? Yeah. I think in a way, obviously there's a lot of us that would also like to pay our bills. And I think yes. that's very important. No, I don't, Teresa, I like money. Don't get <laughs> right? me wrong. I like money. <laughs> As you're talking to the investor community. Yes. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing, right? There's a spectrum and Ian Mitchell is like far on that spectrum of creating a nonprofit and going in that direction. But I think we all are contributing to reducing crime and what financial fraud crimes fund. And that's that aligning ourselves with that greater purpose can remind us why some of the day-to-day tasks that are obnoxious or the project that seems ginormous and unattainable, why that matters and why it's worth it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we as fraud professionals get special latitude to really care about like the specific identity and intent of people Mm. who are working Mm. with us online. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of, I I don't mean to be reductive, but like a lot of people who work on the growth into the world, I made a product and this product displays itself. It shows some great value. It has a call to action. The button gets the credit card transaction rolls through as much as they can. They want to simplify that down to that motion, being able to live at that level of like, who is this actually? And what do they want to do? Like really gives us some ability to create amazing experiences and keep them safe. Yeah. Yeah. And we can use data to understand what their intentions are. I think that's something that a lot of us love. I geek out anytime I can. So completely get it. Just one more thing on the challenge of getting engineering resources, because that is something that I know a lot of the merchants I listen to, a lot of the merchants you guys are talking to are experiencing, just like you experienced this as well. However, you did say, eBay, you guys did have internal resources, which are like everything. It's a double-edged sword, right? Mm-hmm. The build versus buy, there's pluses and negatives all day long. But do you have any suggestions from your experiences of how to navigate those challenges of working with cross-functional teams that don't often understand the importance of fraud and, and fighting fraud? This is a topic that comes up It's a theme within a lot of my episodes because it's a huge pain point. In some ways, we don't do ourselves justice as fraud fighters. We can sometimes come across as chicken little and we care so deeply and don't understand why other people don't. And we don't take time to understand their communication, what they care about, what their KPIs are, what their communication style is, all of that. So I'd just be curious to know what your what your tips and tricks would be from that perspective. So I've got like a lot, like this could be a whole whole thing on its own. (laughs) I think so if you had to give, have one soundbite that I would, you know, give as a fraud professional when you're trying to talk to anyone internally, you'd be that in the business or the tech end of the house. Mm -hmm. And it's Bank of America knows what lending product to offer when, because they understand their customers and what they want. Amazon knows what products to offer a customer when, and at what point in time, because they Mm. understand their customer and what they want. There is not a solid justification to not invest in understanding who your customers are and what they want. Mm. So that is, if that is the the smallest thing to bring forward as the ethos is just like, we're not going to have a conversation about the challenge rate. We're not going to have a conversation about net fraud loss. We're going to have a conversation like fundamentally 
We just need to understand who the customer is and what they're here to do. Or if they're not a customer, if they're a, the kind Wait. word, if they're a visitor. Or a guest. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think in a longer sense of understanding it from a, from a bigger piece of it. it. It really, for me, it always comes down to what is, what is guiding people towards being excited about it. Um, like mm. so much about just like organizing large groups isn't necessarily getting them to understand the same thing because everyone comes from a different background where they're, you know. Right. They care about different things. But what can everyone rally around and be excited about? Like one of the things that, that sucks if you don't have a dedicated fraud team, by fraud, uh, sorry, by engineering team for fraud, is that they always have the option to work on something that the CEO cares about instead. And I, I tell this to people all the time, CEOs don't want to talk to me. They don't want to hear about how much of their growth number might be fraud or how much of you how little. Both. Yes. <laughs> so it's... Some do, but it's usually after they've lost an insane amount of money. And right. then it's a different kind of conversation depending on how, where they are in that process, but not proactively, not many. Yeah. No, absolutely. And what, what I would say is as you're having those conversations, you're, yes, all of your internal metrics and the way that you run your dashboards are all going to be like really focused around those hard metrics, but like bringing that up and like a little bit, I don't mean this in a caustic way. And it's, this is kind of promotional to you. Continued learning is huge. One of the things that surprised me from being on the solution provider since to going to the merchant end of the world is that like merchants are really laser focused on their problems and maybe can see one or two degrees mm -hmm. out. When you're a solution provider, you're always competing with each other. Who has the best Intel and you know, solution for like full spectrum of anything that could possibly happen. So you end up getting like a broader view of things, which again has its ups and its downs. When you know a bit more about what might happen, you can build some better solutions for what might happen down the road, which mm -hmm. gives a lot more confidence for your, when you're talking to your tech teams that like, if I dedicate the resources to deliver this, that this is really going to solve meaningful problems today and in the future. And th that's one of the frustrating things that I've seen from engineering teams is that they feel like the fraud strategy or fraud operations team doesn't know what they're doing or bad at their job because they keep on asking them for more stuff, not realizing mm -hmm. that they're fighting against a really, really like diverse set of adversaries that can flip tactics in a moment. So it's a different world than security where you lock down your endpoints and control your, uh, your network playing. Yeah, I can. I think that's really smart. And it's a good way of looking at it as far as, and I do come across that. And I think there's two different reasons for that. One is that the, the fraud team isn't aware of what could happen or what will happen. And yeah, not at the risk of self-promotion. Like that's something that I love to work with companies with is, hey, have you, I was talking to a large, how can I put this? A very like top 20 brand that has a mobile app that's very popular and they haven't yet experienced account takeover because it's fairly new. And so I'm like, have you, you know, experienced account? What's that? As you're building your, your solutions, you should be aware of that. I also would imagine that it probably is happening. You just haven't seen it yet because you don't have the insight on your login. But those are the types of things like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. If you haven't, you're going to. Or if you haven't, you are. You just don't know what to look for. So that's one reason. The other reason is that it, from my perspective, I, I'll take the bullet on this one. Not all solution providers are building their tools to fight the fraud of tomorrow. They're not thinking about that. They're not thinking about what, okay, if we plug these holes, what new holes are going to come up? And then if new holes come up, depending on where that solution provider is in their, honestly, in their journey as a startup, right? With investments and VCs and 
where they're at, they may be in a place where they their investors would like them to spend more focus on acquiring new providers with the technology they have, no new merchants with the technology they have, rather than innovating for the, the merchants that they have right now. And I think that also causes merchants to have to go back to engineering and say, hey, I know that we implemented X tool three, four years ago. It's not cutting it anymore. And unfortunately, that makes the fraud team look like they don't know what they're doing because there are other departments that work with engineering, especially if it's in-house, who are like, we put in that customer service tool 10 years ago and it's still working fabulously. What's the problem? So that that is an added complexity to it. I think one is just the merchant themselves not knowing what to expect and haven't seen enough of the forest to know, okay, when you don't have this problem, you're going to have that problem. Or when you put this kind of tool in, this is where they're going to migrate, that type of thing. But then on the flip side, there's also, unfortunately, the vendor component where not all of them are motivated or incentivized or aware that they need to continually invest in R&D and innovation. Yeah. And to your point, even with Whenever there's a switch out in the tools, if there was any sort of discontent from the engineering into the house of, oh, like we had this build versus buy decision, we said we should have built and they decided to buy and like this validates that. So not the you know. internal tools also have to be recalibrated quite often on, on your dime. So there is that too. <laughs> with with if, probably if not the same set of engineers that built it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. And you've got that one engineer that knew everything about it and then he went away and nobody knows how to fix it or where that line of code was. Uh, been there. I know you have also <laughs> on the tech side for sure. Oh, yeah. So I think speaking of innovative solutions, I think this is a good time to take off your former merchant hat, put on your co-founder hat. Myself as several other expert fraud strategists I know on the merchant side have been intrigued and interested in the unique solution you and your team have created at Spectra. It's it really is different than what else is out on the market. And I think that's important. And I think it's in part because of where you sourced your your intelligence on what to build and how to build it. Can you share a little bit about your company, why it's so unique and how you came up with the concept for your product? I, I'm going to uh, struggle to not stumble after that very warm introduction. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. I, I, my I, listeners know I'm incapable of bullshit. So <laughs> it literally is the truth. I, I think I said it on one of the ads for you guys. Like I wasn't taking... I just strategically, I was like, look, I need to catch up with people like merchants and stuff like that. I'm not going to take meetings with vendors. And by the second day, I had heard your name come up so many times by people I really respect in the industry. And I was like, all right, I'm going to reply to Julie's note. <laughs> I need to meet you. <laughs> and I was glad I did. <laughs> so spec trust in a nutshell, right? So we saw this same problem come up over and over again, where you have applications that are spread out all over the place. So if you want to understand the customer journey, you're going to have to talk to your engineering team who's going to go from everywhere from the, the account creation experience to the login experience to everything that happens on platform to payments, transfers, whatever that might be. That's a lot for them to wrangle that data. So that's a little bit you know difficult on that end. Then you have all the different APIs and vendors that you might want to integrate with and which ones are good, which ones aren't. It's hard to know until you've already bought and that's expensive because it takes your engineers to plug all that in. 
And then even once they've given you back an opinion, you have to find a way to shape the customer experience based off of what those vendors giving back to you. What that turns into is just like months of lead time and millions of dollars, right? So it's like, how could we... Millions of dollars lost due to fraud in the meantime, as well as millions of dollars to invest in the implementation and... the engineering cost, it's all of the operations cost Mm because you're not going to, you're not going to let the business burn, right? So your operations teams are just going to be like running crazy queues just to try to keep everything running while you're, you know, waiting for solutions to land. So, Mm. hey, how could we make this cheaper, faster, more comprehensive, give people a better view of it end to end? Like we built SpecTrust specifically to achieve that, right? So we, our platform deploys like an invisible overlay over the entire customer journey. So we see everything from when the customer first shows up all the way until they like finish doing it, whatever it is they're doing, whether it's like a payment or a transfer or what have you. Because we see every page they load, every form they fill out, every button they click, we uncover their identity and their intent basically automatically. And like from there, we can orchestrate your integrations you know, to fraud solutions providers or to your own internal systems, whether that is creating tickets in your you know, ticket systems or your case management systems, or if that is stopping orders from shipping in your OMS. And we can automate any sort of workflows that you might want to have inside the customer journey. We do all of that without your engineering teams having to really write a line of code at all. So that gets you to a spot where you are better able to stop fraud and abuse and then also find places where you have maybe an underperforming vendor or even breakage in the customer journey. I can find that spot that easily and correct it. Yeah. And I think something that's really unique about that, that I know a lot of people have been talking about on the merchant side is the point that you made about you really are, when you're selecting a core fraud vendor, you really are also selecting the some of the default things about your customer experience, about the customer journey, because your customers are going through their process. And And that's not a problem. That's not, there's not a problem with that itself, but wouldn't it be cool to live in a world where we could say, okay, we want to run this top of funnel. And then we want these type of customers with what looks like these types of intentions to go to this path. And we want the customers that look like they have great intentions and they're doing all the things that a good customer does to go to the fastest path of least resistance, but we'll put a little extra and it can be different paths for different groups of personas within your system rather than what are the capabilities of this one core solution that I selected. Yeah. And it's really just like, how do you create that amazing experience? Like we, even to the point where when someone is flagged for a challenge or goes through an account recovery process, like if we will be able to see if that turns into a poor performance in a checkout experience. So if Mm. we see breakage because someone goes through some sort of friction, we have the opportunity to show up with a one-time coupon code, or we have the opportunity just to to trigger email follow-ups. Like that we have this ability to keep someone plugged back into it where like we can still provide assurances around just trust and identity, but also make sure that as we find good customers, we keep guiding them towards great experiences. When I talk to merchants, the number, one of the biggest problems with adding new technology is engineering resources. I, I believe that's what you've heard too. I'd love to hear a little bit about how, and I'm kind of throwing curveball because I don't think this was like one of the questions on the thing, but are on my outline, but I know that you, some of it came from the risk salon and the group there of merchants, really a grassroots group of merchants started in the Bay Area. And there were a handful of really exciting startups that came out of that based on kind of some people like you, visionaries that understand technology, hearing the same issues over and over again. 
What were some of those issues you heard over and over again? Obviously, we talked about engineering resources, but some of the other ones that made you really pull the trigger on creating this. There's a, so I'm going to, Fretmetrics is a great company. Love Fretmetrics, right? A lot of my favorite people still work there. Yeah, you worked there for several years. Yeah. Yeah. Alexis Nexus today. Something that every single risk solutions provider does is that when the product doesn't perform, they will buy time. So they will generally say the product's not performing because it needs to be implemented differently, or you need to supply us with more data, or you need to give us more truth data. There will always be something where we're on the merchant side. Yeah. Like we're Mm -hmm. here to show up and be like, we are the best solution. You just need to use us better. So a lot of it was like, how could, and and that's tough because generally the person they're talking to is a person who's in the fraud group and they're going to have to go back to engineering saying, so I talked to the telephone and and they said you implemented it wrong, do better. Right. And in fairness to threat, in some cases, that's true on the oh, vendor no. side yeah. like a lot of times it's true but i will say and i again i'll take the bull of this there are some solution providers that that is their go-to every time and there's been more than one occasion where those merchants have come to me and just been like wow i i guess we're sending this wrong or i start hearing the same thing it is this trend analysis of no that's your provider gaslighting you that doesn't happen with everybody for sure but there's certainly some key companies that keep coming back in mind, that is their go-to. And your previous employer is not one of the ones I'm thinking of, but just to clarify, I don't want to make it. (laughs) Yeah, no, like genuinely, we we needed more data every time we asked for it back in the threat metrics days. But like we often did it to ourselves. We'd go to implement and Mm. it was like, hey, we're going to have device ID and IP, but we also need email and like their info team was like, no, we're not giving you email. I don't know if the solution is going to work if you don't give me an email address. And we had to go through the process of deploying it, it not working that well, and then having to go, you know, back to the well to get them to really push it through. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. So that's definitely one of the the challenges I think that a lot of people have is so it's, you know, not integrating. So here your engineering team is integrating with a provider and they're not even integrating with them in the most optim. It's not optimized in the best way. I think every merchant's like, hey, tell me how you're going to perform before you're in production. And like every every solution providers like struggles to figure out how to do that. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. A lot of times there are some cases where you can do a POC, but they're never going to be the same as having the solution implemented directly. Mm -hmm. And so you're right, there's not a lot of options to try before you buy. There's a couple of providers that have started doing a little bit like a light edition of that, but it's challenging. And even then it can mean an implementation of some sort and waiting in that engineering queue. So I think what would be helpful is to share, what are some of the use cases that you're working on with merchants right now? I know that there are several, but I'm really excited about, honestly, all of them because I think they help different groups of companies. There's some really cool stuff going on with how we are like orchestrating things across uh, customer journeys. I think one of the, the biggest things that we've learned as we've come to market, as we've started doing more things for more merchants is that our, our champions and stakeholders who are working in like fraud or are actually looking to have better partnership with the cybersecurity end of the world. They're looking to have better partnership with operations. They're even looking to have better like explanations to why they're stopping, what they're stopping with their growth teams. So a lot of the, I would say like the most exciting things that we're working on is like we're literally taking that initial view where like it, you know, the bot solution starts to make that low, medium, high assessment, a block sum, let's say a control group through or some mediums through. And then we're looking at what they're doing once they get onto the platform. Are they testing a bunch of, are they doing ATO, like what accounts were compromised and then feeding that back to the ATO vendor, feeding that back to the bot solution provider. And then as it's going downhill, 
letting the people at the payments level understand this is what they thought about when they logged in. This is what the, you know, the bot solution provider thought about. And by the way, this is what they did on platform compared to that delta from what a, a good user is. Because an, an attacker can, an attack can make a device look legitimate and they can rent IPs out that will look legitimate. But like the attacker, unless you have an insider problem, the attacker doesn't know what your good traffic looks like. So it is, it's just been really compelling for us to like really open up awareness about what's happening across the entirety of that. The upside of this is that we're getting solutions deployed over multiple checkpoints, all feeding into each other, just basically like internally we call it like silo free, but silo free in the course of a couple of weeks when normally this is just straight up not achievable. Like we, one of the fraud leaders we worked with was like, yeah, I have a five-year roadmap and you guys dropped this down to three months. Right. So, so it's just like, it's, it, that has been just a, an enormous way to like, just, just see people like accomplish things and be able to really focus not on the, did we ship it or not, but like, how are we creating an amazing experience? Yeah. And my understanding is it can be as simple as, Hey, we want to implement this one solution and our engineering team can't do it. Can we just plug into you because you partner with that solution all the way to these complex orchestration, which have been really fun conversations for me to have with some of the companies that you're working with about what that could look like future state if you didn't have the the silos or the restrictions of having to pick just one. You can pick this one for this set and this one for that set and do some A-B testing and have some backups and all of that in a way that has been very restrictive before. Absolutely. And then, and for the people who are just using us for just a single vendor implementation or just like even something really narrow, I love our engineering team and they're brilliant. We're solving problems that are so mundane and boring for our customers. Am I formatting a phone number correctly for, you know, this solution provider's API? So <laughs> like being able to just like seamlessly take care of those kinds of problems, just so it's simple. And then turning that back around and it's like, okay, I understand how this vendor performs. What if I want to take action? What if I set my block thresholds differently? What if I set my watch list differently? Just helping them understand what that what if looks like. It's just been, it's been phenomenal. It's game changing. That's why you're the talk of the town, so to speak. The merchant town, if that's a place. I don't know. That's the place that I'd like to be the mayor, or at least considered. Yeah, right. <laughs> Wait, merchant town. I think being the mayor of fraud town is my wife always like, oh, what does your husband do? It's like, oh, he works for a fraud startup. And they go, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I know I have to be like, I'm in fraud prevention, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. not committing it. Because <laughs> if I was in the committing side, I'd have so much more money. <laughs> Let's be clear. And we do have a lot of solution providers, as you know. Um, I mean, Spectrust is one of them, but lots of other ones who also listen to Fraudology. And if they're interested in becoming part of your network or suite of solutions, what makes a good vendor partner for Spectrust? Really for like our best providers are really, really focused on providing the best insight possible in a very specific area, whether that is identity validation or identity proofing, whether that is consortiums. What we've found is that there's a couple of like really key consortiums, but they all kind of slap differently depending on if it's a you know high volume, low margin business, if they're more focused towards like boutique drops. So like really understanding what those is and serving a very like well-defined, like they understand that market segment, like mm. that has been phenomenal for us. And like people who are really about not just here's a whole bunch of data, we can do this and we can like, like clear that gap. But if you're the type of solution that only wants to give one score, it's probably not the best fit. Mm. But if you were like, hey, like 
here's a score, sure, but here are the 250 data points that we like drove towards that outcome. Uh, fraudsters are like gremlins. They're going to chew the wires that you're not looking at. So being able to be just feel confident that you're providing exemplary signal that you don't have to keep everything in a black box. Because in a way, I see Spectrust in a few different ways, one of which is almost like a marketplace for solution providers in the fraud space. And the solution providers that you're working with are ones that you know, you're curating them based on how they're solving the problem and the data that they provide and all of that. But also in some cases, you have a merchant coming to you and saying, hey, we really want to implement this solution. If they're not in your platform, can they be? And those are conversations you'll have. I know one of the things that we talked about was this concept of easy on, easy off. And that is different in the vendor space than what is typical, right? Sometimes there are three-year contracts required. Sometimes there are minimums for thresholds for API calls and just all of those restrictions. And some providers, especially if they have a chargeback guarantee, will say, we need to have all of your transactions go through here. You can't just do a percentage, et cetera. And by using you guys, merchants are able to easily implement somebody and use them, but then also have that ability to switch. Is that a good summation of what, uh, yeah, of what no, that is? Okay. Absolutely. I need to go get my charger. My laptop's about to die. So let's do a quick snaps and get right back. Yep. We'll pause it. Yeah. So what I've found is that there are uh, a lot of people who are in the space who are really confident about their technology. They're confident about their R&D investment strategy. They're confident about always staying merchant first. And like for those folks, you really don't have anything to worry about in the sense that is difficult to pull off. Then there, it really behooves you as a merchant to be able to really put your people towards, you know, to the test and have not have the switching costs be something that is keeping you embedded with them. I, I cannot tell you the number of times I talked to a merchant who is using fraud detection technology from 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, it's the, the switching cost is super painful. They don't know how to build a justification. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so deeply embedded. There are, yeah, there are whole businesses that are just about just like nursing customers who like refuse to get off of ancient fraud products that haven't been supported for half a decade. So that is obviously not a situation that anyone wants to be into. And that is Definitely a core part of, of a bit of what we do. And even there's some solutions providers that prefer you know, to integrate with merchants directly. They don't want to be on our platform if they can avoid it because even though it makes it a lot easier for people to start using solutions providers with us, it also means that if they fall behind, um, that it's easy for them to move off. And you know, we are, we always say that we're Switzerland, like we don't have any like preferential treatment of one solution provider yeah. versus another but we're pro-merchant, right? Right. Like at the the end of the day, it is merchants who are making amazing experience, designing and delivering amazing products that really are the lifeblood of everything that everyone here is doing. So we're always merchant first. Well, and that's capitalism and just competition, right? I, I like the fact that you're democratizing it in a way where sometimes I'm talking to merchants who are like, I really wish we could switch, but it's the cost involved. It's the data, they've got the different pieces there. And There are some providers and you and I are thinking of the same ones because we've already talked about it offline, but I'm sure a lot of people listening to are. I know you said they had flat out said they don't want to work with you guys because they don't necessarily feel confident that they have a best in class solution. And it is part of their business strategy to make it challenging or overwhelming or difficult for their merchants to migrate to something that may be a better solution that may 
improve the merchant's customer experience that may reduce the merchant's chargebacks. Not all fraud solutions are created equal. I swear that's going to be on my tombstone. <laughs> it's so frustrating to me sometimes. A lot of people are like, oh, fraud solution's a fraud solution, just like a payment provider is a payment. I'm like, that's not true either. But like both are very uh, subjective and it can be very confusing. But I like the fact that the solutions that are on your platform it gives them a reason to keep up their game, keep their merchants happy because they do know that it may be easier for them than it has been in past times to make a switch. I'm not saying they're going to change every day. There would be serious or even every month or every year there, there could be some challenges there that you're not locked in. There's some freedom there and also some responsibility that goes with it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I truly you know, love and value the solutions providers that we work with. Also, I have a very, you mentioned capitalism, like I have a very firm belief that there isn't really a capitalist system that makes any fraud solution work well over the long term. As it gets more popular, there's more incentive for attackers to break it. As it gets on in years, investors expect the R&D curve to come down a little bit and to show more profitability. And it becomes, and also, as it gets more popular, more competitors show up to try to drive down like your price. All of those things, I think, make it really hard to like really have this like enduring fraud detection solution. We say over and over again that there's no silver bullet. If I thought there was a way to create enduring value being the detection solution as well, we would have built it. It's just no, like what I want to do is, you know, kind of like reward the people who are, who are doing this, who are in this, who are, you know, in this fight. And like, and if the financial realities make it impossible for them to stay ahead of this and eventually they need to make way for a new generation, like how can we be kind to the merchants and make that switching cost and the switching time just as painless as possible? Yeah, I'm blown away by the capabilities that you guys have um, built and the ease um, of everything from just a simple implementation, speeding it up to doing all these complex, fun orchestration projects that I get very excited about. You're solving a very long-term problem that I think we all just assumed was the way it was. And that's the worst way to do something is because we've always done it that way. One of my goals of this podcast is to help people understand what's out there and what's available, both on the threat side as well on the vendor side. And one example I came up with from a threat side when you were just talking was how much bad actors have built in email validation and verification into their process. This is one of like a thousand examples you and I could both skim together. But several years ago, it was an edge that we had to know how many years an email address had been seen in the wild, so to speak. A long time ago, we used to know when it was created on Yahoo and AOL and other things, but the, they don't really exist as much anymore. But now it's, you know, how long have we seen that in the wild? And that was a very trustworthy data point. But now in the last six months, year, a lot of merchants who have come to prioritize that quite a lot and put a lot of weight on that if the email address matches the name and the address and all the other pieces and has been around for a while. Now that's out there, especially yeah. with public data records. And as some data brokers who provide fraud prevention services also sell their services to other companies that they may not verify as much, the bad guys are going to have the same information that we do. And so it's it becomes stale and obsolete. And that's just one example of why we have to be switching things up because they will continue to adapt just used to be that device ID was our edge because fronsters were using proxy IPs, but they knew nothing about the device. So we have to keep stepping up our game and you're not trying to invent the end all be all solution. You're just trying to connect people. And 
add some more flexibility to that. And I think that has been problem and a need in the industry for a long time. And so that's why I was excited to um, be able to just let people learn more. Yeah, no, and I'm excited about what you, you talked about device ID. You've seen the device ID turn into uh, proxy piercing, turn mm-hmm. into behavioral biometrics, turn into like secure browsing environments and just like seeing these like this evolution of things like out on the horizon, talking to uh, a startup founder who's working on uh, psychometry, just like literally just like deducing what someone is trying to do or what their mood state is based oh on how gosh. they're interacting with the site. It's just like really cool stuff. <laughs> We're not going to build it. We'll connect yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. But as a passionate people connector, I get a lot of joy out of that. You know, I know you guys get joy by connecting solutions with people that need it. We all have a purpose. A lot of us who have been a part of the community for a while, as you have, get to a point where we do want to create something bigger and lasting and, and that changes things systematically rather than just duct tape and bailing wire and a band-aid here on a bullet wound and things like that. Just to wrap it up, as you've built Spectrus, what has surprised you? I think the biggest thing that has been a, a bit of a surprise is how poorly understood fraud as a problem class or mm-hmm. a societal ill or like whatever you want to call that, like how poorly observed that is, right? Like I've watched so many times where there's some publicly traded merchant and you look at their quarterly report and just, okay, like where are they peanut buttering their fraud? Oh, there's a little <laughs> bit of, here's some transaction loss. Here's some bad debt. Here's some operating <laughs> costs. It's just like watching the smear that around, seeing people who like, oh yeah, here's this seller account on a marketplace that turns bad. I'm like, okay, cool. Like how long were they bad? And how many like bad transactions were those? Like, well, these, but you know, the chargebacks didn't come through. It's like- Chargebacks are not the only fraud out there by far, especially these days. Exactly. And I think that's really been like understanding how just like crazy low visibility there is into how pervasive of not just like a financial problem, but just like a just trust, uh, like trust on the Internet and like yeah. how that changes experiences. And that's just that's just huge. Yeah. And more of the bigger companies are focusing so much more on brand trust and Mm -hmm. just trust as a currency than they even are the dollars adding up on chargebacks because the data shows how important that trust is. There's one large merchant that told me recently, and I don't think I've said this on the podcast before, that they, and I'm not going to say the exact percentages, but they studied account takeovers. And then they studied what happened to the customer activity after their account was returned back to the customer. And that spend over, you know, the lifetime spend dropped by a significant amount. It was more than 50%. You know, you have a user that spends a couple thousand dollars on your site a year. They get their account taken over. It gets restored. Now they're only going to spend a couple hundred dollars if that. That costs your business big money and there's not, there may not be a chargeback associated with that account takeover, but it's impacting the bottom line. And those are the types of problems that I think that seasoned front fighters are trying to solve. And then there's others that are trying to just solve the chargeback problem. And that's okay too. We're all in different parts of our journey. No, I remember, um, oh man, I don't even know, maybe like a decade ago, Electronic Arts, their like very first video game distribution platform came out. I Bought one game, had that account taken over within a couple of months and the re- account recovery process was so bad. I never came back. It's just, yeah. I, I worked with them about 10 years after that all happened. It was a mess. <laughs> and unfortunately, again, a lot of merchants have to go through their oh shit moment before they realize, okay, this is important or, oh, this can happen. But they didn't think about that ahead of time. Thankfully, more 
tech companies are starting to hire people in fraud and and um, abuse and trust and safety prior to all that, some still have to learn a lot of lessons. And it's yeah. always a challenge is balancing that growth and just the, the quality and the quantity. That's always going to be a challenge internally. Well, Nay, I really appreciate this conversation and I've appreciated all phenomenal. of our conversations before too, where there's something about fraud fires, you just become besties instantly. Tight instantly. But is there anything else you'd like to add? Honestly, this has just been a fantastic opportunity speaking to you. Yeah, for, you know, I guess any of your listeners, like if you know, we're looking to solve complex problems across the entire customer journey or just looking to get access to the best technology the fastest way possible, please come check us out at spec trust.com. That's right. I was about to add the forward slash fraudology because I'm uh, like, yes, it's no. all good. <laughs> well, thanks again, Nate, for sponsor and for sharing like your passion for fraud and for creating this platform for the industry. I honestly think this is your our first sponsor that truly can provide benefit and value to both my merchant listeners and my vendor listeners. Mm-hmm. So that's a a unique quality. There's unifying people, data and tools, right? That is just like the core of what we're trying to achieve. Solving the universe's problems (laughs) one one implementation at a time. Thanks again. Amazing. Thanks, Greece. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.